You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So we're going to look at the work of the angels in the book of Genesis, God willing. And there's an awful lot to cover uh, in the book of Genesis alone. So we're going to look briefly at the following topics. First of all, the relationship between God and the angels. What is God doing and what are the angels doing? We look at the creation of the world and of Adam and Eve. We look at the Garden of Eden and Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel. And then we look at the lives of Abram and Sarah and also the destruction of Sodom, and then the lies in the lives of Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and, and Joseph. Now, when the Sadducees asked Jesus about the seven brothers who each had the same wife, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, uh, Jesus answered, David shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. The promise of becoming equal to the angels should fill us with a desire to know as much as possible about the angels. And we will see that hopefully a study of the angel of the angels will lift us up above the mundane and enter the divine. We have never seen an angel. But they appeared frequently in the Old Testament, where they were seen, and the New Testament as well, where they were seen as glorified human beings, representing God and always doing his will. But from the English, it isn't always clear when the angels were at work. For we often read in the scripture that the Lord appeared unto people, say, Abraham. But, but how can we understand that to to mean does God himself, did he speak to Abraham? We need to think about these passages, uh, which prove to me that God works through the angels. For he said, Yahweh said to Moses, ye cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And John 1, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Because in his life on earth, Jesus hadn't seen God either. And in Timothy, God who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. And 1 John 4, no one has seen God at any time. So we need to take that into consideration, to keep this in our mind when we read the following uh, passages which we're going to uh, look at. Our angels were, we can't travel much in, um, in the situation with the pandemic, but the angels traveled all over the place. Uh, you see them in Earth Chaldees, they were in Haran, and they went with Abram and with Jacob to Machanaim, to Peniel, to Shechem, Bethel, Jerusalem, Hebron, and even all the way down to Egypt. So these angels, um, we can read about where they were and what they did. And starting with the creation, 
we believe that the angels would have done the creative work for God as his representatives. Remember, if God himself would come down, nobody could live. So the angels are not visible to us today, but they were in the past. And we shouldn't dismiss the work of the angels because we can see them now, because it does say in the Psalms, the angel of Yahweh encamps round about those that fear him and deliver them. And the Hebrews, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall inherit salvation? So they are at work today. But let's start at the beginning then at the creation. Genesis 1 verse 1, which is an eye-opener if you know the Hebrew. It says there, Bereshit, that means in the beginning. Bara means he created. Elohim means the mighty ones the heavens and the earth. So God here in the plural says that he created in the singular, the heavens and the earth. So I understand this to mean like this, in the beginning, he created, that's what it says, he created through the Elohim, the angels, the heavens and the earth. And that, I believe, um, is shown to us in the psalm, which Brother Ed read for us, where it says in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that uh, thou art mindful of him? And so I believe that the angels are described here as the fingers of God who did all the work for him. Because it says in Psalm 103, bless Yahweh, you his angels who excel in strength, they're powerful beings, who do his word, heeding or obeying the voice of his word. Just remember that God himself can't come down to heaven on the earth because we would all just shrivel up and burn up. But the angels carried out God's word for he spoke and it was. The angels did it. And thinking of it, what a joy it must have been for the angels to create uh, different species of animals and raise it from a lion to paint vivid colors on flowers and uh, paint uh, different fish in the sea. I remember the snorkeling with Miss Kathleen in, at the southern tip of Sinai. Uh, you've got a five meter high uh, coral reef and the amazing variety of fish made me think what a pleasure the angels must have had. I paint one with silver and orange, another one with yellow and blue, another one could draw a dotted fish. And it must have been such a joyful um, uh, thing to do for God because God commanded and the angels carried it out. The pinnacle of the creation was of course the formation of Adam and Eve. But look what it says very carefully in Genesis 1 and verse 26. And Elohim, that's the plural, he said, that's the word of God, let us make men in our image after our likeness. So we are made after the image and the likeness of the angels who are the representatives of God. I imagine the angels forming and shaping all the bones and muscles out of the dust of the earth, filling Adam's skeleton with the internal organs, uh, put eyes in the sockets and, and, a, and a brain. And 
what pleasure they must have had. And Adam woke up and saw him walking and speaking and probably asking many questions. But then God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, and he created Eve. And there we read that Yahweh Elohim, he caused, so Elohim in the crow, but he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which Yahweh Elohim had taken from Adam, he made, actually he built, that's the word for to build, into a woman, and he brought her to Adam. Now the word for deep sleep, that's tardema in Hebrew, is used in modern Hebrew for anesthesia. So Adam must have been put into a deep sleep, otherwise it would be too painful for him. And I just imagine, brother, just let your imagination go. How do you build a woman from a rib? Perhaps one angel made the cut in the side of Adam, as you can see on this picture. Perhaps two other angels kept the wound open for another angel to take out the rib. The wound had to be kept clean before it was sewn up again. And then, yeah, there was only one rib, but we've got more than 200 bones. So perhaps that rib was chopped up in more than 200 pieces and given to other angels who each shaped a new bone. Another angel may have put them all together and uh, attached ligaments to them. And then other angels would have multiplied the tissue, the muscle tissue from, from the rib and attached muscles to the skeleton. The frame was then filled with the necessary organs to make life possible and then covered over with skin. And then we read that the angels brought Eve to Adam. Well, how did that go? I imagine two angels taking Eve by her hands and bringing her to Adam. They had to explain, I guess, where she came from. But they would have witnessed the joy in Adam that he was presented with this beautiful woman. A joy that is in a small measure reflected in the eyes of the bridegroom when he sees the father bringing his bride to him on his wedding day. And what a beautiful picture of the joy which Jesus will have when he sees his bride, of whom we hope to be part. Now the angels must have met regularly. Adam and Eve must have met regularly with angels which appeared when a wind sprang up in the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9, And they, there's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim, plural again, walking in the garden by the wind of the day, so it was for the wind rustling through the leaves of the trees. And after that, eating of the forbidden tree, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim among the trees, or rather the tree of the garden. And Yahweh Elohim, he called, that's God's voice, or God's command, to call out to Adam and to say to him, where are you? And you'll see that angels always ask questions. The angels must have been so sad when they saw this happening, but they could not prevent it. They also must have been pleased that Adam and Eve confessed their sin of having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But still, atonement had to be made for their sins in order to be forgiven. And the angels must have sacrificed, I suppose, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, poured out its blood to make atonement for their sins. So here the principle is established that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then they would have used the skin 
of that lamb to make tunics. So it says in verse 21, for Adam and Eve, Yahweh Elohim, plural, he singly made tunics of skin and clothed them. And now the work of the angels took on a very different dimension. That is to seek out and minister unto those people that God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by questioning, the angels give us an opportunity to reflect, to repent, and to make the right decisions. And now we go to the next chapter, chapter 4, where it says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Yahweh. Abel also brought out the firstborn of his flock and of their flock. And Yahweh respected Abel and his offering. He did not respect Cain and his offering. But how did it happen? How did Abel know that his, was sac his sacrifice was accepted and, and Cain was rejected? It's quite interesting that it says in, in chapter 3, verse 24, when it says that, that he, Yahweh Elohim, drove out the man and placed Caribbean at the east of the Garden of Eden and the flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The word placed, is actually the cause to dwell in a tabernacle. So I believe we have here a proto-tabernacle where the way to the tree of life um, goes from west to east because they were thrown out of the garden to the east of Eden and Cain and Abel have come and brought the offering on an altar. And the carabine, perhaps angels, here is a flaming sword, would have told them this is acceptable and this is not acceptable. And this is, in a sense, the, the, the tripartite division you have in the tabernacle, in the temple. When the forecourt has an altar, they get a holy place where the angels or the saints are. And the Holy of Holies was represented by the tree of life. And, and so we have here the beginning of worship established in this proto-tabernacle in, in Genesis. And so life went on, they had children, and until we come to Noah in Genesis 6. And Elohim, again the angel, but he said, that's God's word to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth has filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now the Hebrew word for cover and pitch is virtually the same. It's kapar. We know that word from Yom Kippur. Of course, it's a, it's a covering. And that's what atonement does for us. It covers our sins. But it's quite interesting to read how they, Adam and Eve and their children and all the animals went into the ark. Because it, it says there, sorry, in Genesis 7, that Yahweh, he said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So note that the name-bearing angel doesn't say, go into the ark. No, he said, come into the ark. So the angel was already in the ark before he called Noah and his family. The angels were there with them in the ark. And then, of course, the animals had to be brought in. 
So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as Elohim, the angels. He had God's word commanded him, and Yahweh shut him in. Two things should be noted here. I'm sure that the animals did not come to the ark of their own accord. Like I imagine invisible angels putting invisible leashes around their necks uh, to bring them in. Just as those two milking cows of the Philistines were forced to leave their cows behind, but they had to pull the cart, the cart was the Ark of the Covenant to bring it to Beth Shemesh. But the angels were inside the Ark, and they would have closed it from the inside and not from the outside. And so the angels were there with Noah and his family in the Ark, at least in the beginning, and perhaps they came back at the end, but perhaps they were there all the time. The angels controlled the weather. And at the end, after a year or so, they had to reverse the weather patterns to make the earth dry again. For God remembered Noah. He didn't forget Noah. Now he really forget us when we are in trouble. So the picture of the angels being with Noah in the ark, I find extremely comforting. But let's fast forward now to Genesis 11. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm rushing through, but I try to focus only on the work of the angels. And there in Genesis 11, verse 7 and 8, uh, God said, or the Elohim said, let us go down. Men, no said the plural, let us go down and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh, he scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. But it says, let us go down. So there were more than one angels uh, at work there who confounded their language. I must have created many new ones. The angels remembering their creative powers when they created a brain that made it possible for Adam to see and to hear, to smell and to speak. They knew how to confound the language of the people in Genesis 11. They must have devised a new grammar with a, a new vocabulary and implanted into the brains of certain groups of people to prevent them from replacing God with a system of worship of their own. The word for confound is, is Babel, from which we have our word to babble, to, to talk unintelligibly. And it has the same meaning in modern Hebrew. So don't babble my brain, don't confuse me. And then we go to the next chapter in Genesis 12. We read that Abram was told to leave Ur of Chaldees. Remember the map there in the bottom of Iraq there? And go to a land unknown to him. How did he get there? He didn't have a satnav, he didn't have an atlas. Again, I believe it must have been the angels that directed and accompanied Abram to the land that God had promised him. It was difficult for Abram and Sarah to wait for that promised son to be born, especially when it became physically impossible because of their advanced age. And so they took matters in their own hands when Sarah suggested that the son may be born to Hagar. But despite the misadventure with Hagar, God had promised that he was, what God had promised he was now going to perform. And there's one of the most wonderful works to my mind that they were tasked to do. 
It says in Genesis 18, verse 1 and 2, and Yahweh, he appeared to Abraham, so that's in the singular, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as you are sitting in the tent door with the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes and looked and built three men. So we read, Yahweh appeared, but now we've got three men, three angels were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet him and bowed himself to the ground. And he got an indication what angels look like, just like young men. They didn't have wings like a swan and they don't have a halo above their head or anything like that at all. And then in true angelic fashion, they asked the question, where is Sarah, your wife? Now God then said to Abraham in verses 13 and 14, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. If you read in the next chapter, the angel never came back. And I believe it's not completely correctly translated. It says actually, at the set time, I will restore to you as the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. That was promised in the previous chapter. But my covenant hour establishes Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time. Now, the time of life of a woman is when she is, when she is fertile and strong and young enough to give birth. That cannot be said of a woman of 90 years of age. And Sarah said so in verse 11 of Genesis 18. Abraham and Sarah were, well, were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So here again, I believe the angels were allowed to use their creative powers to rejuvenate the old bodies of Abraham and Sarah, to make them young again so that Isaac could be born. What a joy they must have experienced to see each other as they looked many decades ago. I'm sure that many of us would like to have such an experience. But thinking deeper of it, what a powerful exhibition of the resurrection of the dead that was. It must have given Abram that strong faith that even when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, he did believe that God was able to raise him from the dead because he had experienced the power of the resurrection in his own body. And Abram's body was made young again for after Sarah died. He married again and fathered six more sons by Keturah. Rather difficult when you're over 100 years of age. So it gives us a realistic image, brothers and sisters, of the resurrection. And we hope that we can experience the same joy that Abraham and Sarah must have had when they saw each other as young as when they first married. But then that one angel stayed behind with Abraham and the other two and to Sodom, which we believe is Talal Haman. And Yara said, shall I hide from Abram what I am doing? The name-bearing angel listened patiently to Abram's pleading to save the lives of a few righteous people in Sodom. He didn't tell them to shut up and go away. I'm going to do what I want. No, he listened to so 50 or 45, 40, and so on. They were sympathetic 
to Abraham's concern to save the lives of righteous people. And indeed, they saved Lot, his wives and daughters from the terrible destruction. And so in the next chapter, when the morning dawned, the angels, there were the two angels that went to Sodom, while the name by angel stayed with Abraham, they urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. It was difficult for Lot and his wife and his family to leave. Would you like to pack up your bags and go? I mean, there's no destruction to be seen anywhere at all. But again, the angels showed great patience with Lot, but all they wanted to do was to save him out of the terrible destruction of Sodom, which they knew was going to come because they were going to do it. And so we get an insight into the character of the angels. They're, they're caring angels, they're sympathetic, and they can understand our difficulties, and they can work with us and, and persuade us to do the right thing. Now come to look at the lives, the angels in the lives of Isaac and Rebecca. See, the work of the angels in the life of Jacob began with the choice of his mother. When Abram was getting old, he didn't want his son Isaac to have a Canaanite wife, but one of his family back in Haran. He knew that God's promises had to be passed on to his son and then to his grandson. And because his desire was in harmony with God's will, he was sure absolutely convinced that an angel would guide Eliezer's servant to the right woman, and so it happened. Therefore, Abram could confidently say, Yahweh, Elim of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So, Rebecca became the wife of Isaac with angelic help. Her faith in the promises of Abraham motivated her throughout her life. She knew that her son was going to be the promised seed of the woman. But then she became pregnant and had twins. She asked, why this? So first of all, Isaac pleaded with Yahweh for his wife because she was barren, and Yahweh granted his plea, and she conceived. The, the children struggled within her. And he said, she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. If only one can get the promise, who's going to be? And then Yahweh said to her, two nations are in your room. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's what God had determined. So Rebecca knew that Jacob was going to inherit the promises and not Esau. And that motivated her future actions, which were all in tune with the purpose of God. When she made sure that Jacob was going to be blessed by Isaac, she acted out of faith. We may not be comfortable with Jacob saying that he was Esau to get the blessing. But remember that Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob. And in this context, Jacob was legally the eldest son and deserved to be blessing because the blessing goes with the birthright. Today we would say that the twins had swapped passports. 
So Jacob had become Esau. He had Esau's passport, as it were, because he had sold it to him. The one that was at fault here was actually Isaac. His eyes were dumb, dim. Had he forgotten what God had promised? Did he never, did he never communicate with Rebecca anymore? Did they do the readings anymore? And he led his life and she led her life. She couldn't communicate God's purpose with him. But God called Esau a profane man because he despised his birthrights. That's in Genesis 25 and verse 34. And in verse 27, we are told that Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob, a mild man or plain man dwelling in tents. But that word mild or, or plain means perfect in Hebrew. An amazing testimony about this young man, Jacob. When he's 17 years old, God called him perfect. He wouldn't say it about himself. But if God had said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, have I hated, then we need to respect that. And so the angels are now going to work in the life of Jacob. Esau, Esau tried to kill Jacob. He had to flee from his father's house and went to Haran, where still some of Abram's family were living. And then on the way, he stopped at Bethel. And he had a dream about angels. It's amazing, thought, brothers and sisters, that the angel that created the brain in the first place also knew how to manipulate the brain cells to create a vision in Jacob's mind in which they themselves appeared. And it says, oops, then uh, he dreamed to build a ladder or a, a raised causeway was set up on the earth and it top reached to heaven and that the angels of Elohim were ascending and descending on it. Well, at that time, the central stairway to a ziggurat, like the one in Ur, was called the gateway to heaven. And that may have influenced the depiction of the stairway. It wasn't a ladder like the, you know, which you buy in, in, in B&Q or, or so. Uh, it, Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. God would not have loved him and protected him all his life. But Jacob realized that he had been in the presence of an angel, for he said in chapter 28 to 16, when he woke from his sleep, he said, surely Yahweh is in this place. And I did not know it. Jacob knew that he had been in the presence of one or more angels. Then he raised that stone on which he slept and anointed it, which we know was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And after many years away from his hope, from his home, he could say, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truths which thou hast shown your servant. I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. He was all alone when he left. And now I'm become two companies. And so after he separated from Laban, the angels of God met him. Go to chapter 32, brothers and sisters. And there we can read this wonderful verse uh, where Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Can you imagine the angels of God going to meet Jacob? When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Machanaim. 
Now, here you see a picture of Mahanaim, just the archaeological site on the top of the hill with all those wall remains. That is Mahanaim. It's at the end of the, or on the side of the river Jabok. As you can see here, there's a fast flowing stream, that's the Jabok River. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Now, a couple of years ago, we tried to get there, and there's the road going to Mahanaim, which is just around the corner here, but there was a flash flood, and <laughs> we couldn't continue our journey. And it was pretty powerful. And the place and the place had cordon off the road because you could lose your life in such a powerful stream. That happens only one in 20 years, exactly on the day that we tried to cross uh, the, the Jabok River to go to Mahanaim. But there is something beautiful. When you think of the, the angels there in the camps, two camps, and in the song, when it says in the Song of Solomon, chapter six and verse 13, it's a beautiful verse. So what would you see? says the bride in the Shulamite, and the bridegroom says, as it were the dance of Machanaim, or the dances of the two camps. And here we can see the angels dancing with the family of Jacob in, in happiness of having saved Jacob from the hand of the Syrian and bring him back uh, to the land. The angels are happy creatures when they see that they rejoice in, in God's work and in the way they can participate in it. But Jacob still had a few tests to pass before he could go to Bethel, the house of God. Because after Jacob had met Esau, he met a man who fought with him all the night, as you can read in Genesis 31. But Jacob prevailed, and this man was an angel. We're told in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4, yeah, he struggled as Jacob struggled with the angel, and he prevailed. He wept and sought favor for him, but he found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. And then the angel changed Jacob's name to Israel, a prince of God. And Jacob acknowledged that the angel of God had protected him all his life. That's what he said to Joseph when he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. Look at Genesis chapter 48 by Narcissus, where we read verses 15 and 16. And he that is Jacob blessed Joseph and said, God or the Elohim, before whom my fathers Abram and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me, the God who shepherded me all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So the angel of God shepherded. Jacob all his life. Jacob was a shepherd himself. He knew what it means to be a shepherd, how you look after the lost sheep. And we can read all the account of him being a shepherd. And we think of Jesus being our good shepherd. As the angel shepherded Jacob all his life, shall we believe that there's also an angel that will shepherd us through our life. And Jacob suffered much in his life, and so do we, brothers and sisters. But God's angel always protected him. And we can take such great comfort that although we can't see the angels, the angels haven't changed, just we can't see them. 
And finally, I'd like to look at the angels in the life of Joseph. You know from Genesis 37, you can read there from verse 5 onwards, that Joseph dreamed two dreams, one of the sheaves and the other of the sun and the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. Who put those dreams in his head? They were purposeful dreams. They had something to tell Joseph about the future. They had a powerful impact on Joseph. And they, I believe, sustained him throughout a long period of his suffering. However hard his life was, he believed that God would fulfill these promises, these dreams, or he didn't know how or when. And then in, in chapter 37, we see that Jacob, he sends Joseph to see how his brothers were doing in Shechem. They were supposed to be in Shechem, the place where the promises were renewed, but they weren't there. Now we don't know what went through the mind of young Joseph. He's only 17 years old, but he must be full of trepidation. All on his own, going to see his brothers who hated him, they may kill him. But if you follow the landmarks which you have seen on the journey to Shechem, official Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah were buried, and then to Bethlehem, where his mother was buried. You pass by Mount Moriah, where Isaac, his grandfather, was sacrificed, but his life was saved. And, and you pass by Bethel, where Jacob had a dream. He knew all about that, because he loved his quiet time with, with his, his father, uh, Jacob. And, and then he came to Shechem, and his brothers weren't there. Well, I'll be very relieved. I can go straight back to my dad and say, well, I don't know what you asked me to do, but they weren't there. But no, that was not in God's purpose. And it says in Genesis 37, verse 15, now a certain man found him. And there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Now that certain man asked a question, like an angel, which he probably was. That angel was probably going to be with Joseph and protect him in his upcoming suffering. Joseph didn't know yet that his ordeal was in the purpose of God. But he had said that his purpose in life was, I seek my brothers. He never wavered from his goal, which was achieved in the most extraordinary way that even Joseph could not have foreseen. And we read in Psalm 105, let's look this up again. It's such a wonderful Psalm about Joseph. Psalm 105, maybe read from verse 16. Now he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent the men before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. That says he was laid in irons. It says in the Hebrew, iron came into his soul. But until the time that his word came to pass, the word of Yahweh tested him. The king sent and released him. The rule of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house, 
and ruler of all his possessions. So it was in God's purpose that Joseph was sold into Egypt. Initially it went well with him in the house of Potiphar until his wife desired him and cast him to prison. But even there, God did not forsake him. It says, Yah was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. How did that happen? If it was not the work of the angel who made the keeper take notice of Joseph. And next, we are in the prison with Joseph, two, two state prisoners, the butler and the baker, who both had a dream. It must be so comforting for Joseph, who never forgot his own dreams, to get the explanation of the dreams from God through the work of the angels. It must have encouraged him to continue to believe in the dreams he had as a young person. Still, he had to wait another two years before they were fulfilled. It is read in Psalm 105, until the time that his word, Pharaoh's word, came to pass, the word of Yahweh tested him. He still needed to be tried or purified before he could become the savior of his brethren. And then the king sent and released him, and the ruler of the people let him go free. Now he was free and in charge of all the affairs of Egypt. It was the only way in which he could help his family that was still living in the land of Canaan. They could never have imagined that this way was planned by God and executed by his angel. The long prison had indeed purified him, so that at the end he could forgive his brother. How could you have said it otherwise? Be not grieved, nor angry with yourself that you sold me here. For God, the Elohim that sent me before you to preserve life. God spoke and the angels carried it out. So we chose the book of Genesis, brothers and sisters, out of all the biblical books as it records so many appearances of angels. They had so much work to do to create the background for this foundational book. Starting off with the magnificent heavens and the earth and the universe, the outer reaches of which scientists are just beginning to explore now is this brand new James Webb Space Telescope. So the universe, the beautiful vegetation in the Garden of Eden, the animal world, and of course, human beings with all their potential for good and evil. Certain events must have been intensely interesting for the angels, like the confounding of the man's language at, at Babel, the rejuvenation of Abraham and Sarah, the reunion of Joseph and his brother. They may have required many volunteer angels. The lively interest of the angels in all the purpose of God displayed in the Bible should convince us of their nearness in the affairs of men today. Although the news is dominated mostly by the coronavirus, be assured of the work of the angels behind the scenes, manipulating world e events and politics to prepare mankind for the return of Christ in these last days. Another thing that the study of the angel recalls is the love and respect we should have for our brethren and sisters. For each one of us may have their own personal angel, for that is what Matthew 18 and verse 10 seems to indicate. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven the angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So an awareness of the presence of the angels should make us very careful 
of our behavior toward each other. And when you do the readings, Brenda says, look out for events that may be influenced by angels. It may, may help us to reflect on how angels might have been working in our own personal life, perhaps. We were told that at our baptism, there is joy among the angels of God in heaven. Let's therefore grow in grace so that these redeeming angels can present us faultless before God's presence with exceeding joy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen